Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. We're the only country that comes up with a name for fun. Crack. It's blackguarding. It's scutting. It's no harm. 55 euros straight out of my account. So they have my money and I have no test. Sad time for all these people. And it's always a good-hearted person to change them. Join the conversation. Call 0818 969696. 96 96 96. Extra WhatsApp 083 396 Yeah, there's bananas growing in West Cork. I kid you not. Not only that, and I'll talk to them later, they're growing on the grounds of one of my favourite restaurants. Bananas growing in West Cork. (laughs) Hello and good morning to you. Yes, I know. I just thought I'd throw that one in. A little bit of joy. Uh, in, in, a, in a dark morning for news yet another dark morning for news another bit of joy um, we talk about scammers and people being caught and people watching out for scams and trying to avoid being caught I'll talk to someone later who caught the catcher who figured it out because she knew a bit about Cork she wasn't too familiar with that she just went for it and she caught them out so that's coming later on. Um, We will look at that trial in the UK as we predicted yesterday. Lucy Letby jailed for life. Uh, If I'm reading it properly she only come out of that prison in a coffin. She's 31 or 2 now and she got 14 life sentences. Full life Sentences. That's coming up later on also. But first, to the tragic local story. We were reporting on it yesterday morning with Ralph Regal from the Irish Independent. You all know at this stage that on Sunday morning at the Ironman Triathlon in uh, Yall, two men unfortunately lost their lives. Brendan Wall, who's 44, and Ivan Chittenden, who's 65. Uh, and they died in the, or during, or around the swim element of the Ironman triathlon. And yesterday, there were post-mortems being carried out. There were files being put together for the coroner. And all that the Gardaí were saying it was being treated as a, as a tragedy. And then last night, at around half eight, a statement was issued, which, in my view, throws a cat among the pigeons and asks massive questions. So, Darren Coombs is the chief executive of Triathlon Ireland. Triathlon Ireland is the governing body for the sport in this country. It's a global sport. It's an international sport, but it's an Olympic sport, actually. But Triathlon Ireland is the governing body for the sport. And Darren Coombs is the chief executive. And he issued a statement last evening in which he said in our almost 40 year history the sport in Ireland has an impeccable safety record for the Ironman Cork event in line with normal practice Triathlon Ireland technical officials attended before the start of the race to review the conditions and carry out a water safety assessment 
here's the line. Due to adverse conditions on the day, Triathlon Ireland technical officials confirmed to the race organisers it was not possible to sanction the race. Now, at that point, Mr Coombs does not develop his statement any further, except to say it wouldn't be appropriate to make any further comment. But he's put it out there that the governing body said to them, said to the organisers, very on a Sunday morning, we can't sanction this event. Ralph Regal again is following the story and has it in The Independent this morning. Ralph, that's a very, very significant statement. Morning. Oh, it certainly is, PJ. Um, And I don't use the word bombshell lightly, but it really is because um, we thought we were getting answers to some of the questions that had been raised in the the aftermath of the tragic death of these two men. Uh, Finance Minister Michael McGrath was doing a press conference at the Mercy University Hospital yesterday, and he basically said, look, we need comprehensive answers to the questions that have been raised by the circumstances in which these two men died and he more or less said that look we needed an, there was an investigation by Ironman Cork and he said that there may very well be room for an investigation by Water Safety Ireland but I think this has raised a whole new series of questions um, for instance who made the decision in, in light of the fact that Triathlon Ireland said the conditions were so adverse that they wouldn't sanction it well then who made the decision that the race should go ahead. What was their qualifications for making that decision? Cork County Council are the primary sponsors of the Ironman Cork. Were they aware that the race proceeded despite the fact that the governing body of um, triathlons had said that the conditions were so adverse that it shouldn't go ahead? So again, like we have a coroner's inquest that's going to take place next year. The post-mortems uh, were conducted yesterday at Cork University Hospital on the bodies of both Ivan Chittenden and uh, Brendan Wall. Uh, the Guardian have said, look, it's not a criminal investigation. They're preparing a file for the coroner. But that coroner's inquest, I think at this stage, is going to be very, very high profile given the general circumstances of it. And I suppose given the circumstances for all sporting events, mm-hmm. um, that if they proceed, well, what's the ratification procedures? I mean, if a governing body says, look, it shouldn't go ahead, well, then what are the rules and regulations uh, in terms of determining a decision? So there's there's, there's actually more questions now um, than, than, than we would have ever thought possible. There's a thing, and I know that we uh, are going to uh, send a question through the public relations company to Mr. Coombs because he he stops short in his statement, um, Ralph, of saying that that shouldn't have gone ahead. He said it sh- wouldn't be possible to sanction. What we don't know is the meaning of that. Is that a, te- uh, a tacit instruction to the organisers, pull the swim? Yeah, there's... A, there's we don't know that, don't know, Pete. We, yeah. we don't know that. We don't know what the regulations are. We don't know what the legal position is that if a governing body in these circumstances says, look, there's adverse conditions, what's the legal onus? I mean, are the organisers, are the event controllers themselves entitled to proceed if their safety person says, look, uh, the conditions are OK? But I think, I mean, obviously, everyone in their statements are saying, oh, safety is our priority. And that's really the nub of the issue is that if you have an organization saying the conditions are so adverse that it shouldn't go ahead, if the organizers of the event themselves acknowledge that the conditions are such that the distance of the swim has to be reduced from 3.8 kilometers to 1.9 kilometers, 
really, if it goes ahead, there's very, very serious questions to be answered here because let alone if someone had been injured, there are two people dead. And I think their families, as well as every other competitor that was in that event, I mean, they deserve clear answers on safety protocols and and, and the general, you know, the, the circumstances in which the decision was made to allow that event to proceed. Yeah. One envisages that a phone call to the Health and Safety Authority might be on the agenda here. Yeah, um, Water Safety Ireland uh, may be another body that could have an input in this. I mean, the statement that was issued last night by Ironman Cork, I mean, it laid enormous emphasis on safety. It went it, it went into great detail about the, the reasons why the, sh- the, the course was shortened, why there was various, you know, a- additional safety um, boats and kayaks and whatever in the harbour. Yeah. But I mean, the reality is that anybody who saw the footage, the social media footage of the conditions in which the swimmers entered the water, I mean, there are definitely questions to be answered. I mean, I had a friend who's a fisherman down in West Cork and he rang me and he was astounded that swimmers were, were trying to cope with those type of conditions with such a swell, with um, large waves hammering into the shoreline, with an undercurrent and with, with swimmers basically being physically driven back into the next row of, of swimmers that were trying to enter the water. Yeah, the conditions are being described in other papers this morning as horrendous by swimmers who took part uh, there's swimmers saying that it was overcrowded, they were being kicked and jostled and pushed and thrown around by the waves. There's a lot of questions remaining to be answered here isn't there Ralph? Oh very much so and I wouldn't anticipate PJ that we're going to get the answers to those questions um, in the short term I think we're really talking about medium long term here because I think what's going to happen at this point is that you're going to have a lot of organisations looking at this for, for investigations or inquiries I mean certainly um, the actual event organisers are going to be investigating what happened I think you're definitely going to have Cork County Council having a long hard look at this because of course the commitment is that Ironman I think is supposed to return for the next two years, uh, you've got water safety. I mean, Finance Minister Michael McGrath, I think it's quite pointed that he mentioned Water Safety Ireland. I have absolutely no doubt but that they're going to look into the general circumstances of this. And I suppose as part of a formal review or investigative process, you're going to have the coroner's inquest next year, where I think there's going to be a significant amount of data sought in terms of the general circumstances in which these two men lost their lives, of course, um, Ivan Chittenden is a 65-year-old accountant. He retired two years ago. Very, very experienced uh, endurance sport athlete. Mm. Uh, and I saw photographs all, of him, a very fit and healthy-looking man. Yeah, very much so. I mean, he hadn't just taken part in endurance events like triathlons and Ironmans in uh, North America, but he had competed at various different destinations across Europe as well. And Brendan Wall, then a 44-year-old man from Slane in County Meath, um, he had worked for a company in Cavan for, I think, many years before he got uh, the director of sales position for a specialist manufacturing company at Solihull um, outside Birmingham in the UK. There's lots of tributes being paid to him um, today. And of course, his death notice was just put up on RIP.ie last night. Now, the funeral arrangements have yet to be um, outlined. But I mean, there's two families in mourning. And we find ourselves in a situation 48 hours after the tragedy with more questions than answers. Indeed, and I'm sure you and I will speak again about this many times. Ralph Regal, Southern Correspondent of the Irish Independent. Thank you. Just that statement again, and the question that it puts in my mind, 
and if I was back in my old days as a jobbing hack with pencil and paper and tape recorder and, and those kind of things, the statement says, due to adverse conditions on the day, Triathlon Ireland technical officials confirmed to race organisers that it was not possible to sanction the race. And if two questions, one for Mr. Darren Coombs, CEO of Triathlon Ireland, does that mean a tacit instruction to pull the swim? And for the local organisers, my question would be, why did you ignore that advice? 0818 96 96 96. There's a lot of questions. It's, it's a tragic, tragic story. Two men are dead, two fit, healthy men who turned up to take part in an event uh, Mr. Chittenden in particular, very experienced, had done this all over the world. I, I don't know about Brendan Wall's experience in triathlon, but you need to be damn fit and healthy to take part in even the most calm conditions for these things. Oh boy. Oh boy. This is so... It was a big story, a big tragic story when it broke on Sunday. It's a much bigger story now. 0818 96 96 96. Join the conversation. This is the Opinion Live. With Hidden Hearing, changing lives with the latest hearing health technology. They're all ears. Visit hiddenhearing.ie. Fox 96 FM. Over the years covering the homelessness story, uh, crisis in Cork, I would have met, spoken to, interviewed, and just chatted with Reva Lawler many, many times. I'd have had a cup of tea with her once or twice and she'd have been here telling me her story on 96FM uh, more than once. Uh, Reva has been in and out of homelessness since she was 17. But earlier this summer, the Peter McVerry Trust, those wonderful, wonderful people, gave her the keys to her own home. Reva, I cannot begin to say how thrilled I am for you. Good morning. Uh Good morning, PJ. How are you? I'm uh, great. I suppose not as good as I am. Um, yeah, uh, I suppose anyone that knows who the Peter McFerry Trust is, Peter is a Dublin priest who started a trust. He started dealing with homeless people, I think, in the late 70s, early 80s in Dublin. But I suppose the difference between Peter McFerry and... Other housing associations is they care, they deal with the whole person. If you're willing to work with them, you know, um, they offer, I have a 24 hour phone line that, you know, if anything goes wrong or I need to speak to anyone, I can ring. And that alone, I suppose, has changed my life completely, you know, because I know now I'm never going to get too sick, you know, um, mm to care about the person you know it's not just putting a roof over your head it's helping you to keep the roof over your head to live as full a life as you possibly can because anyone i suppose will especially like me that suffers from the mental health and would have a history of mental health problems um needs something you know you just i just not a lot but i just need to be made sure that i'm not sick you know mm. um, remember you telling me one time long ago, Reva, that you have built in you, because of the way you are, you have a built-in self-destruct button and sometimes you just reach for it. Peter and his team can stop you in that moment with a phone call. Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. They're absolutely amazing. Um, I know we don't have them in Cork that long now. They're only a year, I think, about four or five years. But they have really, the impact they've made in my life is just unbelievable. They took over a place in North Main Street, didn't they? Up over an old bank. Yeah, the old, but the old Ulster Bank or TSB Bank or something there next to, uh, yeah, the end of North Main Street. Fantastic. They, but they have, I suppose people don't realise, they are... They're, they're building, they're taking over old properties and changing them into making them into apartments and that. And like with the help of the Cork City Council. Um, but it's just, it's amazing. It's going to change, you know, I think it's going to change how, especially people like me, how um, the homeless will be looked at. And, you know, it's just fantastic. How did you come in contact with them? I know you've been involved with all the different... Two APS. To APS, yeah. APS, are like, I know they get a very hard time here in Cork because... It's the housing services. Yeah, the council services, yeah. It, it was through the APS. I had been a long time um, waiting. And because I, I have specific, not specific needs, like there, I have a lot of needs, you know. And um, they were the only ones that actually fulfilled all the needs, you know, that they would give me the supports. They have the 24-hour... You know, there, I have a key worker. Um, there's support whenever I need it, you know, and it's oh, it just changed me. PJ, you have no idea. It's just changed my life completely. It's, I know I will never just be left alone to allow to wallow and get ill. And I suppose because of my mental health, I've picked up addictions over the years, which happens to people with mental health issues. Maybe, maybe, Reva, for people who don't know your story, and, and you sound, I'm so thrilled, you sound so fit and healthy and happy now. But I've spoken to you and you weren't so well. Let's, oh. take, let's, let's go back a bit, and for people who wouldn't know your story, what is it? Okay, my story, what is it? Um, I came from a, a very nice family in North Tipperary and um, I suffered from sexual abuse at a young age. So by the time I suppose I hit 12 or 13, I realised what had actually happened. I had, I had no idea up to then that it was wrong. Um, and this hit me in such an impact me in such a way that I suppose I cracked, I mentally cracked. I started running away and by the time I was 17, my mother had been diagnosed with um, borderline personality disorder, which at the time they used to call um, borderline schizophrenia. Now, I at the time, I never believed I had voices. I suppose now I know as I'm more educated in, in everything, you know, I fit the bill, you know, totally. Um, so for years I was running away, I would, would, would have been dabbling in drinking, I first, that's when I first met Peter McFerry. I had my first hospitalization for alcoholism when I was 17 in Coomer and Atai. And that's where I first came across him because he used to, he used to mind the boys from Ballymun. He used to bring them down. She had just opened the drug unit at that stage there. And I suppose my life went on. I got sober for a while and became well for a while. And I ended up here in Cork. Um, I suppose I, 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 I have to put in. I had a, I had a baby in Bedford when I was sixteen, um, and I suppose I have a little carnage after that. And I suppose my children suffered most than, than anyone else. Um, and I'm very lucky, I suppose, that at least one of them speak to me today. But I, um, 
I decided, I suppose, in 2014, 2015, I'd get sober. I had lost everything. I was in Edel House with a black bag. Um, and I, I made a pact that with myself that I would do my best and that I deserved it because I never felt I deserved, um, I deserved to be happier, deserved to life. So I took a decision and I became involved with the Katrina Toomey and Petty Dinners and the High Hopes Choir and I was on a documentary and I had very mixed reactions after that, good and bad. I suppose that's the thing about um, putting your story out there. Um, so I suppose I just decided I'd get well. I, I do a few hours in the Haven Cafe here in Cork. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I get involved in as much positivity as I possibly can. And I've just, just suddenly, I've just, my life just seems to have clicked. I'm very happy in my own skin. I advocate now for people who, who are like me, who are suffering. Mm-hmm. And I suppose the great thing, COVID caused horrendous problems and horrendous pain and people had horrendous losses. Mm-hmm. But the only thing, PJ, that has come out of it is people like me are sort of being more understood because no one sort of in Ireland has suddenly stopped and realised they had to sit with their own mental health. Yeah. So people that never suffered or never had any inkling of what it felt like suddenly had even the small inkling. Because all their distractions life. were gone. Yeah. Yes, and you see, it's very important for people with mental health illnesses to have a routine and to have distractions and to just... Because I, I know for me, routine is extremely important. Um, but suddenly people started understanding me and started understanding that, you know... Because for years in Ireland, people used to say to me, it was just... You were just acting out or it was just, you know, you can do this or... And there was very little understanding on mental health. I, I, the one thing I do find, and I suppose a pod, positive from coming from COVID, is that people actually seem to now understand more and don't take it as much for granted. And we have very little help in Ireland, unfortunately, because of our mental health system here. You know, it's very, very hard to get help. Yeah. And not, not even different from me, but I, I suppose... We see so much teenage and preteen mental health issues now that it's it's just in ten years I I fear for our country. Okay, you know, may, 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 there, there, you, is there another seventeen-year-old you waiting to happen? I meet them every day. Okay. Mothers bring them in to me every day, every day because I I I don't now I don't promote it too much, but I do little videos on Facebook and I tell people that I suffer from borderline personality disorder and I tell them I'm in the haven and they come in for a cup of coffee. A mother brought a child to me. She was 15. Um, mother has tried everything to get help. Child totally out of control, running away, sexually active, taking drugs. No idea, thinks it's normal. No idea that she's suffering. It's... It, and like it, it's it's not you know we only have cams is totally 
it's just overrun. Totally, you know? uh, totally overrun, totally understaffed. Oh, totally, totally. PJ, horrific. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. You, you know, it's and you it's know the, so hard. the thing I asked you about the self-destruct button, mm. Eva, and, and, and I know you and I talked about it before, and th- there are so many people out there who have it. And mm. one thing I've come to learn from talking to people like you and talking to others, the self-destruct button, one of the reasons that people reach for it at the time when life is beginning to shine a bit it's because they don't believe they deserve it. Yeah, yeah. Do you believe you deserve it now? Today, sitting here, yes, uh, 100%. I deserve every bit of happiness I get. I've hurt, I've hurt people, but I've been so hurt. And I, and I suppose now I see it as such a positive, the negative and the positive that come along with it. But again, Peter McFerry are the only people that have given me, because I can go to, the, like, I can ring my key worker, I can meet her. I can, once I present and they get to know me and know my routines and, you know, my patterns, I trust them enough. And I'm very lucky because I have a lady who, because everyone now, you know, but she, she has a great understanding and she has, she has done the work, you know, she has a degree behind her. And... I trust her and she she speaks to me in the way that I know she knows I can suffer from paranoia that would she would say no this is not the way it is it happened yesterday I was and I rang her and then I had to realize well I found this thing and I text her back and said but she doesn't start to say oh you're nuts Reva or you're mad she'll say you know calm down take a look breath do your breath work meditate yeah you know breathing is so important people do not realize how important it is to breathe. Because I know the one thing I've learned is if in my head, if I count to three, take two breaths in, two breaths out, it's in that matter of seconds, it's whether I react negatively or not. Mm. Yeah, it's very... And I decided I needed to take control of my mental health as well, PJ. That I couldn't sort of sit on my rear end and say... You know, I have this diagnosis. I have this diagnosis, but I also don't want to spend my life being, or the rest of what's left of my life, being totally over-medicated, you know, not living to the best of my potential. Because though I have a destructive behaviour in me, it's only a very small part of who Reva Lawler actually is. Sure, sure. Have you met Peter since... Yeah, well, I, I I missed him. He was here in court, but I hope to meet him soon. I don't. He does when he comes down. I'd say we will meet him, but it's just you know it special is special man, special animal. beautiful human being, isn't he? Yeah, and we again, yes, I'm very lucky. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're very lucky to have him in court, and we have such very good like we have Katrina and the lads and Penny Dinners extremely focused, have done huge work um, there at the end of Grand Parade. Um, it's, you know, there's so much to Simon, absolute, and too many that I can, I could actually name now, but our city is looking fairly dismal at the moment, unfortunately, and, but there is hope, there is change, the turn has come, you know, 
I think they broke the back of the homelessness. I think there's more houses now being built. We see, you know, the high rises as such going up like in Blackpool. And that's the, unfortunately the way we have to go. Yeah. We, we have to go up. We have to go smaller. Um, we need more one-bedroom places for people, you know, that are alone. Yeah. One, bed, one bedroom, them. one bedroom and maybe two, but one bed. There are one. so many single people, single women and single men, homeless. They won't get a two-bedroom because they don't need one. There are no one-bedrooms for them. We need hundreds of one-bedrooms. Yeah, but I think that's coming, you know, I don't, I really believe, you know, I suppose because I dealt with APS and I, I you know, I know, um, I know the system and I know how hard it is, you know, to work around the system, not just for the person that's homeless, but for the people that are actually working on the other side. I would hate that job. I think it must be horrific to have to deal, because I know I've gone into them in horrific I mean, hysterical, um, and it's they do they genuinely do do their best with what very little, yeah. you know. Uh, and so many people here complain about the system and how it doesn't work. And it is wonderful to talk to you, Riva. In your case, it has worked, and with between the APS and Peter McVerry, I've never heard you sounding so happy and joyful. Fantastic. And you should see me. I'm blonde now and I got new teeth and I've lost two and a half stone. I'm dangerous, Peach. Reva, I will see you soon, my dear friend. You too, Brad. Peach, lovely you. to you talk to you. You mind yourself. Take care. She's great crack. She's a gas article. Reva Lawler housed properly for the first time since she was 17 years of age. Now that would make you smile on the dullest of days. Join the conversation. This is the Opinion Line. With Hidden Hearing, focused solely on your hearing health for over 35 years. They're all ears. Visit hiddenhearing.ie. Quartz 96 FM. Let me show you what it's all Simon Murdoch and the best music mix. Weekdays from midday on Cork's 96FM. The show that provides the soundtrack to your afternoon in Cork. We actually bought a radio just to listen to you because we were always in the room and we know music and we're listening to you all week. Yeah. Only save one radio station on that radio now, okay? Absolutely. Right. Yeah, you never know what I might have to give away. <laughs> It's wall-to-wall superstars. Hello, I'm Luz Capaldi. Hi, this is Calvin Harris. Hey, I'm Miley Cyrus. Come on, let's do the afternoon together. Weekdays from 12. Let me show you what it's all about. Check it out. Simon Murdoch. Midday to 4 p.m. on Cork's 96 FM. Now, just before we continue with the next topic of conversation, just a warning that uh, we will be talking about upsetting things, things possibly not suitable for small ears. So maybe just take uh, take 10 seconds to, to rearrange the furniture, as it were. Turn the cartoons up a little bit louder. It's one of the cases that has gripped Britain. And if you're watching it from this end, it's been gripping to watch. It finished yesterday in Manchester Crown Court, And here are some of the words of Mr. Justice James Goss as he sentenced Lucy Letby. Over a period of just under 13 months, you killed 
seven fragile babies and attempted to kill six others. Some of your victims were only a day or a few days old. During the course of this trial, you have coldly denied any responsibility for your wrongdoing and sought to attribute some fault to others. You have no remorse. There are no mitigating factors. Lucy Letby, the order of the court is a whole life order on each and every offence, and you will spend the rest of your life in prison. And joined by Talk TV correspondent Holly Hudson, who's followed the case. Holly, it must have been very upsetting to sit there and listen to what she did to these tiny, tiny babies. Good morning. Good morning to you. Yes, you're entirely right. It's been incredibly upsetting and distressing and disturbing the nature of Lucy Letby's crimes because, as Justice Gosta said there, these aren't just children. These are newborns in many cases, in all cases, premature newborns, some of the sickest babies in the country. And Lucy Letby went down in history yesterday, VJ, as the most prolific child killer in modern times in Britain. Now only the fourth woman in history to be handed a whole life order, 14 whole life orders, in fact, for every offence she was convicted of. And now only the third currently alive to serve a whole life order. Alongside the other two are infamous serial killers here, Rose West mm-hmm. and Joanna Dennehy, who was responsible for the murder of three men back in 2013. We now understand she's going to end up in the same prison as Dennehy. And because of the disturbing nature of her attacks, the fact they do involve children, she's of course going to be high risk, but yeah. not before she's segregated at the start of her sentence to stop her from being attacked and to allow her to be psychiatrically observed. Because during the trial, as you heard from Mr. Justice Goss there, she denied all of the charges. She claimed she was the victim of a conspiracy by the Countess of Chester Hospital, that their failings were to blame. And now, of course, there are questions over her mental health. Holly, maybe for the benefit of, a, of an Irish audience who, who may have come across this case only as it maybe reached its end or developed in court, who is uh, Lucy Letby? Where did she work and what did she do? So Lucy Letby uh, is a 33-year-old nurse now. Back at the time of these attacks, she was in her mid-20s. Now, she, I think this is the most shocking thing about this case uh, for me because finding out who she is, the fact that she presented as this seemingly normal neonatal nurse. She's from Hereford, rural area here in England. She comes from a loving family. Her two parents were there every single day in court. She had a very active social life. She went to salsa and hula classes with other nurses. She graduated from university here as a band five nurse. She took extra training to care for the sickest babies in the intensive care unit at work all other nurses all other clinicians and doctors had a very good impression of her in fact when they first started noticing an inexplicable and sudden rise at the countess of chester hospital's neonatal unit in fatal or near fatal collapses in babies the 
uh, head of the neonatal unit, Dr. Stephen Brewery, said, not nice, Lucy. The perception of her within their eyes was that she was a good neonatal nurse. But over the course of a year, 2015 to 2016, there were 17 babies involved in this case where there were fatal or near fatal collapses that consultants, clinicians just could not explain that defy their medical expectations. And it wasn't until what they described as the tipping point in 2016 when two twin boys of a set of triplets died within 24 hours of each other, completely unexpected, that they insisted Lucy Letby be removed from the unit. A year later, the hospital called in the police and from there, Lucy Letby was then arrested in a six-year-long police investigation mm. Was it that was it was it the triplets because I read about them in the papers, Holly? Was it the triplets case that kind of blew the whistle and said, "Look at what she's at. What is she?" Had anyone blown a whistle or tried to blow a whistle along the way? Yes, they had, and that is now sort of a huge fallout uh, here from this case. Is how much the hospital were to blame. Now, consultants, many of them testified at trial, uh, many of them, that the gang of four that Lucy Letby tried to blame herself, that insisted she was the victim of a conspiracy of who were trying to cover up failings at the hospital. Those four consultants tried to raise the alarm, raise their concerns, they say, a number of times over that year about Lucy Letby's presence. A staff presence report was shown during the trial that showcased Lucy Letby was the only nurse on duty in every single case of these babies either fatally or near fatally collapsing. But they say that the hospital told them not to make a fuss, that they were ignored. And as I say, it wasn't until the tragic deaths of those two triplets, the day after Lucy Letby returned from Ibiza on holiday, that they insisted she be removed. But they say following on from that, for the next 11 months, they had to resolutely resist attempts to have Lucy Letby back on the unit by senior management. There is now an independent inquiry that's been launched by the government here. There are now calls, though, to make that inquiry tougher, to make it statutory and public. So those hospital bosses that the consultants say do need to be held accountable can be called to answer questions. Holly, one of the reasons I said at the start of this that it could be upsetting for people, what was she doing? The variety of methods that Lucy let be used to attack these babies is incredibly disturbing. As you said, you're right to issue a warning there. As I said, 17 babies involved in the case. Lucy Letby was convicted of 13, either killed or harmed 13 of them, in some cases trying to kill babies more than once. The jury couldn't reach a verdict, sadly, on four of those babies. But in the ways that she attacked them, often they were on significant milestones, for example, on their 100th day on the unit, as I've already already mentioned there. That, for example, is a significant milestone because these are some of the sickest, most premature babies in the country, weighing just a few pounds, only a bag of sugar. And Lucy Letby would either inject air, causing what's known as an air embolus or an air bubble, which in turn causes heart, lung failure, suffocation into their circulation or their stomach. She would inject insulin, so poison from the babies with insulin or even milk, overfeed some of these babies with milk. And that 
could be fatal because, of course, as I say, these are such tiny babies. They're fed a tenth of a spoonful of milk through a nasogastric tube into their body. So any overfeeding them, of course, could cause huge problems. And on top of that, inflicting trauma. One of the expert witnesses during the trial said one of the babies had suffered a liver injury that was akin to a road traffic collision. So truly horrifying Uh, to attack and in some cases kill these children. One of the victim impact reports, I think a dad said, I I prayed to God to save my baby. He did. And then the devil took her. Yeah, this was um, yesterday at trial um, uh, during the sentencing. The families finally got their voice and we heard in heart-wrenching detail, as you mentioned there, just how their world had been shattered by Lucy Letby, or as they put it, evil disguised as a caring nurse. And I think that is the most terrifying about all of this, as I've mentioned. You know, Lucy Letby presented as, and she was, a neonatal nurse. It was her very job to protect these babies. And these families yesterday, these parents, talked about that. You mentioned there called her the devil. You have to think some of these families have been waiting a long time for these babies. Many had overcome difficult journeys with fertility. Some had been born through IVF. Others were first-time parents. And as I've mentioned, these were premature babies. There was, of course, always a risk. They were entirely reliant on the hospital, on the clinicians at the neonatal unit to keep them alive. And we heard from, for example, yesterday, the mother of baby A, who was murdered, and baby B, a girl who Lucy Letby tried to kill, two twins who were born eight weeks premature, her first victims, first and second victims. She killed the boy by a lethal injection of air, we believe, just 90 minutes after coming on shift as his designated nurse, before a few hours later trying to kill his sister and their mother had been in trial uh, at trial listening to all this detail of what she'd done to her children and she said yesterday you thought it was your right to play god with our children's lives maybe you thought by doing this you'd be remembered forever but i want you to know my family will never think of you again from this day you are nothing incredibly powerful words from all the parents but Many of them also talked about the fact that they blame themselves, that they, if they'd been there, for example, because a lot of these attacks, Lucy Letby timed these attacks so they happened at night when she was often the only nurse on shift. Parents had left their cot sides. Many of them talked about that and how the grief still lasts yeah. and also the long-term effect on them, PTSD, they're still on antidepressants, some relationships broke down. And that's, of course, again, what Mr. Justice Justice Goss said as well, the long-term harm that Lucy Letby has caused here. Holly, it's the kind of stuff you read in a trashy novel that you buy for a dollar um, or a euro or a pound. This is real-life stuff. This is incredible. A couple of unusual elements. Uh, There are, despite all of the evidence, many of her friends from school are still protesting her innocence. Yes, and in fact, her mother at trial um, during when the conviction was handed down on Friday, as I mentioned there, both her parents have been in court pretty much every single day. Uh, Lucy Letby, of course, has always denied, as I said, that she, uh, any of these charges, insisting that it was failings at the hospital that were to blame. And when the conviction was handed down on Friday, 
her mother broke down in tears and said, this can't be right. As we understand as well, when she was arrested in 2018, her mother said, take me instead. I did it. She had a very close relationship with her family and friends and, as I say, seemingly completely normal. Um, grew up in a rural area of Hereford. Nothing in her character, the police uh, said, detectives said, that you could really identify as being behind this as to why she did it. And that has been obviously very difficult to fathom. Uh, in terms of her motivation, there's no reason, or this is another reason, of course, that the parents have found all of this so difficult. Not only did Lucy Letby not appear in court to face them yesterday for sentencing, she hasn't admitted or confessed to any of these crimes. And there's no clue as to why she did it. Detective say unless she tells us, we'll never know. The only suggestion given by the prosecution at trial was that she was doing this to play God. She enjoyed the drama, enjoyed the attention, and in particular wanted to get the attention of a doctor that she had a crush on. My God. Text during the trial uh, that indicated or insinuated that they were having some kind of affair, some kind oh of God. relationship, which Lucy let be denied. But when that doctor, who we can't name for legal reasons, gave evidence against her in court, she got up in tears and tried to leave the dog. One other element that it's controversial, and there was, con you know, the content of much talk radio yesterday that I was listening to in Britain, she refused to come out of her cell to attend the conclusion of her trial. I think your colleague on talk radio, Julie Harter-Brewer, said she'd have dragged her in there by the hair if she'd have a chance. She was allowed to refuse to do that. Yes, that is her right here in the UK at the moment. And it's been a pattern of this. In fact, there's another trial recently of Thomas Cashman, who was found guilty of the murder of a nine-year-old girl, Olivia Pratt-Corbell. He didn't appear for his sentencing. And his mother yesterday spoke out in support of Lucy Letby's victims of those parents, saying it was like a punch in the gut, calling for the laws to change here. There's been a huge fallout in that sense, pressure piling on the government to change those laws uh, and force criminals to appear in the dock for sentencing to face their reckoning mm -hmm. as such and to face their victims. And the government yesterday insisted that new laws are on the way, Rishi Sunak said, uh, and called Lucy Letby a coward. And we heard from the Justice Secretary uh, who insisted that they are looking at options to change the law at the earliest opportunity to ensure the silence that follows the clang of the prison gate. Society's condemnation will be ringing in prisoners' ears. Yeah. A lot of anger from the families, of course, and as well politicians about this. Holly, I'm grateful for so much of your time. One last one before I let you go. The, the, the life tariff, we don't have such a thing here. We, we have 40 years for the murder of uh, Agartha, a policeman in the course of his duty or his or her duty. We don't have a full life tariff. Is it the case, Holly, that the only way Lucy Letby is leaving prison is in a coffin? Is that, is that how it is? Yes, she will die in prison after the sentence handed down by Mr Justice Goss. No hope of parole. So, as I said, we're expecting that she will start her sentence segregated, isolated from other prisoners and potentially will then move to another prison where another serial killer who is also serving a whole life order, Joanna Dennehy, will be. But Lucy Letby, following the sentence yesterday, 
will rot in jail. She will die in prison. All right. Holly Hudson, Talk TV news correspondent, part of our, one of our colleagues in the News International Group. Thank you so much for your time this morning. A horrendous case. There's just no words for how awful it is. And reading in the newspapers, I didn't want Holly to speculate on it, but reading in the newspapers, there could be others that we don't know about that she did. Whew. You can bring the kids out now and turn off the cartoons. Join the conversation. This is the Opinion Line. With Hidden Hearing, changing lives with the latest hearing health technology. They're all ears. Visit hiddenhearing.ie. Corks 96 FM. The minds are live. Hello. Join the conversation. Call 0818 96 96 96. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Corks 96 FM. I, I told you earlier on, and hopefully we'll get to talk to them before 12 o'clock today. They are growing... <laughs> Bananas in West Cork. I kid you not. Bananas. Like they've already got a kind of a strange climate down there that allows a bamboo forest in the middle of West. Yes, if you've ever been there. I said it earlier in the summer. It's worth a day out. Go down to beautiful Glengariff. You can pop out to Garnish on the ferry and see all that wonderful stuff out there. But there's a bamboo forest as you go into... um, as you go into Glengariff and it's fantastic. And now elsewhere in West Cork, they're growing bananas. Yesterday we were talking about Castle Townsend and the charming beauty that is that little place. And today with bananas growing. And and maybe even be served up in a dish in a restaurant before very long. We'll get to that later on. Just to give a little bit of joy back into uh, the morning because there's such dark and and... Upsetting news out there. That Lucy Letby case is just horrendous. Horrendous. And thanks again to Holly for bringing us through the details so so sensitively. And we have the, the developing and ongoing story, which we covered at Ralph. And again, we'll podcast that interview later too. Uh, the latest developments with regard to Iron Man and the tragedy at Iron Man and Yall at the weekend. But we love a good story. We love seeing someone triumph. We love seeing a scammer exposed. Now, no one's been charged with regard to this, Melissa, and and I don't know whether anybody ever will or whether you made a complaint about it, but you caught a scam. You caught it out. You spotted it. Morning. Hi. Uh, yeah, so um, it, it, it barely, very barely, <laughs> we almost fell into it as well. Um, but, yeah, managed to, to, to catch it uh, at the end. It was a rental scam. Explain what happened. Yeah, so um, we were moving up from Donegal to Cork and, you know, how how these things usually go, you know, the window between when your lease ends and when you should start, you know, it's usually very, very narrow. And we went up on Doff, where everyone goes, and we found a place. And the thing is, there were no obvious, the obvious red flags that, as you discussed yesterday, that, you know, the price is too cheap or it looks ridiculously nice, you know, or, you know, there was nothing shady about it. Um, If you just look at the price, it was pretty reasonable for the area, just a little bit under. Mm. And it looked like a really nice house. And we had a look at the photos. And then um, when we got in contact, here's where it got dodgy because... um, 
if they try to pull on your heartstrings, that's usually usually where you should start to be suspicious because it was immediately um, not unrealistically, but it was this thing about you know she's suddenly a single mom going through a divorce, really needs the money, needs to get away. So that's why the, the price is really really low. But they they wanted the the deposit immediately because she needs to leave, okay. you know. And um, we were up in Donegal and we were like, listen, but I'd like to see the place first. And they were like, no, no, it's difficult. Don't worry about it. Here are some photos. Uh, then I asked if I can have some more photos. And they sent me some. And I I decided to take a chance. And I actually, in one day, I drove down from Donegal to Cork to have a drive around and drove back up. Um, just That's to see a the bit street. of a spin, Melissa. <laughs> down and Listen, back in one day. <laughs> Good Lord. Yeah, you were desperate. Yeah, no. you were, and and did you, do you know Cork? Uh, no, I didn't. Um, but I knew it was on College Road. So I, in the photos, you could see the windows. So I went um, because, of course, they didn't want to give the address. So I just had to drive around just to see kind of like, can I see just roughly? Is it like this group of buildings here um, and nothing? And so then I took the images and I used a reverse image search. Uh, no, for if people don't know how that works, is you use Google Lens. If you go to google.com, uh, then there'll be a little icon, the color icon in the corner that looks like a camera, but it's mm. the, the Google colors, or mm. you can use Google Lens on the Google app. Um, and that searches the pictures as if you're searching words for the internet. Okay. And the photos came up on a property in London. Uh. And... That like we were already getting the paperwork, you know, to sign because like my husband's a doctor, so he was like, you know, this poor woman, you know, we we it, it, nothing else was too too suspicious, you know, because um, you can understand maybe she's not home or she's she doesn't want to talk to people, whatever. Mm. But you drove um, you drove down. I'm amazed at this. You drove all the <laughs> way, like it's what is it six hours or the bones of it? You drove you drove all no. the you drove all the way to Cork. You found College Road. You went up and down College Road, you had the pictures in one hand, and you're looking over, I don't see anything that resembles this house. And then you searched it using Google Lens, reverse search, and you discovered that the pictures were from London. What did you do then? Um... Yeah, yeah. I mean, bless them. I mean, you, you talked about it yesterday as well. You know, Daft are, are really good for responding to these kinds of things. So I had the emails, I had the photos, I sent it all to them saying, listen, this is the issue. They immediately suspended um, the ad and then they looked at the evidence and then they, they, they stopped it. But um, I did ask them, like, if it was anything else, uh, then they said that the, the account had been in contact with quite a lot of people. They don't know if any money was collected Um but it was it was a very interesting thing because especially because um, I've worked with international students as well and you know the typical scans of you're far away here's the money it looks great you know it's beautiful pictures you know it it, it was not the typical scam you know um, I mean I'm a criminologist and I almost fell for it at least my paranoia got me to drive down to Cork <laughs> uh, which helped a little bit but you're a criminologist. Yeah, no, so. Yeah, <laughs> so it would have been very shameful if I was caught, <laughs> um, which is also something you mentioned yesterday is the shame that you feel if you get caught in it. But it's the it's the it's what these people do for a living. They're really good at it. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned to us as well that um, your, your brother-in-law works in a bank and they are regularly tested to see, will mm-hmm. they fall for a scam? 
Yeah, so he works for a major bank in the um, cybersecurity division. And, you know, they are constantly, you know, almost every month there are new viruses, there are new, you know, hacking, hacking techniques and things happening on. So they have to stay up on top of that all the time. So what the management does is they try to catch them in scams, their own, their own employees uh, all the time. You know, and kind of like if if you get caught, you know, they call you in and it's a slap on the wrist. Um, but it gets so sophisticated, like because these are some of the best tech security experts in the country <laughs> um, and they're being caught in this. So um, mm. so it's 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 really it's if you if you fall, fall for a scam, you're not stupid. Really, it's just it's, they're unlucky. just getting smarter. Go through yeah. again yeah. one last time, Melissa, for people who would have heard of an image search but wouldn't know what to do. We all use Google on our phones, on our tablets, on our laptops every day. So you see a picture purporting to be something. You can check on Google whether that, how, how, so how do you do it? So um, if it be on your phone, you can just save the picture to your phone. And then if you have the, not, not Google Chrome, the Google, plain Google app, if you go onto that, there will be a Google Lens option. Yes. Um, that you can just click on that and then it'll tell you, do you want to upload a picture or do you want to take a, a picture? And then you just upload that picture and it searches, it like detects the patterns in the picture and it searches the internet for it. While if you're on the computer, just go to straightupgoogle.com, save the picture on your desktop or wherever. Then um, on the search bar, instead of typing in, look, it should be on the uh, right-hand corner. There'll be a little icon in the colors of a camera, uh, in the colors of Google that looks like a camera. Click on that, and then again, it'll say you want to upload a picture. So it 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 does a search for a picture because like it it was not one I fe- I fell for. I immediately saw that it was way too cheap and it was way too nice, and I also uh, searched the pictures, and that was a an apartment in New York. And, and so you, these and, things are common. <laughs> and you drove all the way from Donegal to Cork. Did you know just how long a drive it was when you set out? Yeah, but I don't mind driving. <laughs> um, I was, yeah, I, I, I knew it was, a, I knew it was, um, we were just on the other side of Letterkenny, so it was about, about a six and a half hour drive. And I stopped at, at the garages and I got myself, you know, a, a coffee here and a pie there. And I, you know, made my little pilgrimage all the way down and up. I, I didn't know it was as bad or as abnormal until I started telling the locals. And they were like, what the hell? In one day. <laughs> so are you like, still oh, going to move? Are you strange. still going to move to Cork? No, we're here now. Oh, that was about now. a year ago. And you found yeah, it, you found a, a nice ago. place, did you? We did, we did. We found a, a really nice place and the landlord um, is, I, uh, he is the same university I am in. So cool. I know he's a real person. I can find him if I need to. <laughs> Listen, great story, Melissa. Thank you and very well told. That's Melissa Mayer. 0818 96 96 96. Uh, now, my memory is tweaked here and the lads outside the glass know what my memory is like. I couldn't exactly tell you the date. I couldn't exactly tell you who but I do remember talking to someone in the very early years of the opinion line who was caught like this. There was an ad for an apartment in London and it was a beautiful apartment. It was a person moving from Cork to London. Beautiful apartment. Just send on the deposit and I'll leave the keys in a key box. I'm based in the Netherlands so I can't meet you. But look, 
everything is fine, blah, blah, blah. Turned out this person had been scamming to high heaven. The apartment they were purporting to be in London was actually in Japan or some mad out-of-the-way place and they didn't own it at all. So it's not a new one, but thank you, Melissa. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. Power is out at Roach's Buildings. It's gone for the day, we're told. There will be tea, coffee and hot water available in the nearby community centre. Okay, thanks for that. And on the triathlon of the Ironman, it is tragic what happened to these exceptionally fit men. But what if it is cardiac arrest that caused their deaths? I think no finger-pointing statements should have been made until cause of death was known, says Maeve. Which is a valid point, Maeve. The post-mortem was carried out yesterday, one assumes. that From that post-mortem, the cause of death was ascertained. That will come out at the inquest, which will be held in the new year. But it doesn't take from the statement issued last night, Maeve, by the governing body of the sport who said, and I quote them again, due to adverse conditions, Triathlon Ireland technical officials confirmed to the race organisers it was not possible to sanction the race. Your point is absolutely valid. It may well just have been an ordinary cardiac arrest. It may well just have been something that might have happened to them anyway. That's, That's true. That's true. But the statement last night issued by... Triathlon Ireland by Darren Coombs, the CEO, that has thrown a cat among the pigeons. Uh, big time. 0818 96 96 96. Join the conversation. This is the Opinion Line. With Hidden Hearing, focused solely on your hearing health for over 35 years. They're all ears. Visit hiddenhearing.ie. Fox 96 FM. Phones in school, smartphones in school, like they were never a thing. When I was growing up, phones in school, we'd a phone at home attached to the wall with a bit of wire. <laughs> in a really posh house, that bit of wire was long. It wasn't, yeah. yeah. Nowadays, look, this kids get smartphones for their communion and their confirmation. And they're taking them into school and using them in school and we all know where that leads. Well, Waterford is the first county in Ireland where every primary school is to ask parents not to give their children smartphones amid growing concern about their impact. Um, The primary schools in County Waterford are to introduce a new charter which will ask parents not to allow their child access to smartphones or to social media or to age-restricted Games. I'm joined by the principal of Port Law National School, County Waterford, Brian Barron. My first question to you, Brian, is do you mean to parents to ask parents don't even buy a smartphone for a child or don't let them bring it to school? Which is it? Good morning. Good morning, Peter. Um It's don't buy a smartphone while they're in primary school and don't give them any social media accounts while they're in primary school. Impossible to enforce that. I would think. Oh, it's not. It's not us enforcing it. See, we're we're just leading this conversation, and we're working with the parents uh, as partners in this, and with Bernardo's as a partner in this. So this isn't um, a school rule. This isn't like a healthy eating policy or a uniform policy. This is us saying to parents, look, we're seeing serious problems here, and um, a lot of parents already know this because their children have crashed up against cyberbullying, 
you know, pornography and appropriate material, whatever it is. And we're saying, look, we can work together on this. We can we can address this. We can protect our children here. And um, but it's not like I'm a parent of two children. The only place I'll be enforcing this is in my house. Um, we won't be enforcing it in the community of Port Law. What we want to do is empower parents to enforce it within their own homes. I know Port Law. I had a, a college friend from Port Law right, many years ago. Uh, um, so the idea is this: the, the, stu- the schools are saying to parents, "Please do not buy your child a smartphone." Uh, yeah. Where did this idea come from? Who came up with this idea, Brian? So I suppose over the last few years, you know, teachers meeting up together at different CPD or courses or whatever. The problems of of smartphones, they're ubiquitous. It's amazing. From small little two-teacher schools, rural schools, um, big boys' schools in cities. I'm a Deshpand one school in Port Law. Across across everything, you know, boys, girls. So I suppose the conversation was being had. How are we going to address this? How are we going to solve this problem or help parents solve this problem? And then earlier in the year, we saw Greystones had come up with their It Takes a Village initiative, um, which is a very similar initiative, working with parents to, to, to keep kids off smartphones, keep them off uh, social media. So from there, a group of us in, in Watford, I should say, said, right, let's, let's look at this. Let's see, is there an appetite there for it in schools? And we put it out to all the principals. And within a day, 100% of principals said, yeah, we're on board with this. We, we want to help our parents here. We're having these problems. We're seeing these issues. What have parents said, you know, in talking to their individual schools? Widely supportive. I mean, not 100%, not 100%. You're not going to get 100%, but widely supportive. And even the amount of people contacted me like that. I went to, to university in Cork. The amount of people I haven't talked to since... 2000 sending me a text on LinkedIn saying I'm bringing this to the PA down in down in my school in Cork or or, or wherever parents I think there's an appetite uh, amongst parents and, and 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 as I say I'm a parent myself with two children in primary school and there's a nervousness around with parents of who's going to be the first to break here who's going to be the first parent at communion time or whenever it is to buy a smartphone because then we're all going to have to do it there's a sense of peer pressure and what this charter is is that we're saying to parents look amongst yourselves so you can sign up to this and you can say to uh, the other parents in the class look we've signed up to this charter are you going to sign up to it so in a class of 30 you might have 15 parents saying yeah look we're signing up to this and then when the child comes home saying everyone has a phone oh everyone has a phone and you don't want to give your 7 year old a phone you don't want your 7 year old on TikTok or your 8 year old or your 9 year old you can say look I know everyone doesn't because these 15 families aren't getting phones until secondary school and I think that's a very empowering place for parents to be what kind of things are, are you and your colleagues coming across, Brian, or have you come across in the lead-up to, to this chair? The, the, the most, we'll say, I'm going to say simple one, the one that maybe on the outside maybe parents wouldn't realise, is, say, uh, WhatsApp. We all use WhatsApp, and it seems like a very innocent tool to us. We're all on, you know, on the under-7 hurling group or the drama group or whatever it is. The way kids are using it, um, they, they, they use it very much uh, for exclusion. So I set up a group, and it's myself, yourself, and, and, and two of the other boys. And then there's a problem between us in school or there's some issue. So I set up a separate group, and I exclude you. And none, I tell the rest of the boys, don't use that old group anymore. Now, you're out in the cold. You don't realize why. You don't know why. And you see, because it's happening on the phone, often parents don't know until 
weeks, maybe months afterwards, that the child has been going through this exclusion and through this cyberbullying. Um, so that's one way. Another thing we're seeing is, especially with older older children, when I say older children, I mean 11 and 12-year-olds. I'm not talking about teenagers. Mm. Accessing sites around, a number of our schools have had issues around self-harm, where girls are going on sites uh, where they're, they're becoming part of the community, where they're being advised to self-harm. They're, now, these are, are real issues. I dealt with one myself. Where they're being, how to hide it from the parents, what to wear, what makeup to put on. Um, to thinspiration was something we came across years ago. Well, Say that again, sorry? Thin, thin, T-H-I-N, thinspiration. Yes, yes. I know. I, I mean, I have, I have a friend, he's a, he's a fitness coach, he's fitness mad, he never stops moving. His 13-year-old came to him and said, how do I get that gap in my ties? Oh, God. And he said, if your granny had it, you have it. And if you don't, no matter what you do, you're not, you know. So these ideas that, it's not only girls, but uh, in this instance, that girls are being exposed to like that, around being thin, around what is it that, that, that is thin? Um, and the self-harm stuff is terrifying. It's terrifying. Yes, it is. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It is. And TikTok, look, it's the most popular platform in the world. Mm. And it's fantastic. We've all used it and enjoyed it greatly. Mm. But it's also, there's, there's nasty dark stuff on it that you don't want your kids don't want your kids finding. You mentioned it earlier on, Brian, and le- you've got loads of schools buying into this now, which is mm. great. I see where, uh, uh, is it another primary school principal, Trina Daly from St. Ursula's right. School? They've also bought in. She said that so much anxiety is happening among younger students, much more so than it used to, and she blames the influence of social media. Now, here's going to be a, a hurdle, because I know it's a problem here in Cork. Every May is... Holy Communion season and mm. April is confirmation season. Whatever mm. about Holy Communions and talking kids and talking parents out of giving phones for Holy Communion, mm. you're going to have an awful job talking them out of giving phones for confirmation. Yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because as, as a culture, as a society, we've kind of decided that confirmation, the end of primary school, that transition is the right time to give your child a phone. And I don't, I don't think, well, I, we all know that's not based on any research or insight. It's just kind of happened that way. Um, and whatever, yeah, we're, we're, that's going to be, that's the biggest fight. But to be honest, if we got to confirmation and you had 50 to 70% of children making a confirmation who never had a smartphone, that would be a huge win. 
that would be a big change from where we are right now. Do you know what? We'll check in again. And like you said, you went to college in Cork. You may have colleagues down here listening to us, former colleagues, former former fellow students teaching down here. Now, you'd never mm. know. It might catch on down here too. Brian Barron, thank you. Brian is the principal of Portlaw National School in County Waterford, beautiful part of the country, County Waterford, Portlaw, County Waterford. They're getting parents to buy into the idea that we will not give our children a smartphone while they're in primary school. Is it something you think you'd commit to? Someone said on this program uh, a few months back that we've lost that fight. We'd all love our children to get to 12, 13, 14 and never have had a smartphone or never had a smartphone. We've lost that fight. I was horrified to hear somebody say that. Uh, to my mind, it's we've chosen to give up that fight. So would you buy into that? If the school said, actually, please do not buy your child a smartphone while they're in primary school, would you agree with that? Or do you think we've lost the fight? Are your children already addicted to smartphones? Do you already have an 8 or 9 or 10-year-old who's on a smartphone? Uh, Do you regret ever giving it to them? I'm sure you do. I'm sure there are people who gave smartphones to their kids with the best will in the world for communion or confirmation and now they're saying why the bloody hell did I give them that flipping thing I can't get him off it do you know or do we just need to accept in 2023 that screens are part of our kids lives and we really can't keep them away from them there's a new idea though schools in County Waterford they've all come together to agree that parents They'll say to parents, please do not buy your child a smartphone while they're attending this school. And they're having a huge buy-in. 0818-969696, your thoughts on it. Particularly if you think too many children are addicted to smartphones. Particularly if you've got your own kid is, is too tied to their smartphone. I see there's one of the local schools here. Hang on, I'll grab the name. I had it earlier. Yes. This is St. Francis College in Rochestown, who have now announced that they're bringing in yonder bags. Now, the yonder bag is the thing we all got when we went to see Tommy Tiernan in the marquee in the summertime. And you put your your phone into this little neoprene bag. It's like a bit of a it's like a bit of a, it's like a bit, it's like a wetsuit, right? It's kind of a neoprene bag, and there's a, a snap fastener at the top of it, and that snap fastener can only be opened with a special magnetic opener. And we all got those phones going into Tommy Tiernan, so we can't get at our phones while the show is on, and it worked. So now in St Francis, and we'd love to talk to anyone from St Francis College if they're listening. Um. They've introduced yonder bags for September 2023. So you can bring your phone in, by all means bring it in, but you need to put it into a yonder bag so you can't use it. And when you're going home again in the afternoon, the teacher will take it out of the bag for you. That's in St. Francis in Rochester. Anybody else have that idea? Oh, eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. Yes, I will be talking about the Rose of Tralee later. No, we haven't ordered it entirely. Um, our local Rose Kate Chotnessy was first up on stage last night. Like, that's a big job. There are two huge positions in that lineup: Be first and to be last. And over the two nights you have two people first and two people last. We'll talk about it. I, how did you think 
that Dermid uh, or Dermid Dahi and, and Catherine did together. Um, they are pals, and you can tell that. They're very easy going on stage together. But, but I remember saying last week, I don't know why we needed a second presenter at the Rosa Trulli. Having said that, I don't think it worked out too badly. They are friends. They've been friends for a long time. And you can, when people are friends anyway, you can kind of tell that when they're uh, co-presenting something together. And that does come across. But, but overall, what did you think? of the, the television show last night. I was kind of watching it the way I always watch it. And that is, I've got my notes for tomorrow on my phone, which I'm going through. I've probably got a book that I'm reading and the telly is on in the corner and numerous other distractions that normally happen in Coogan Towers of a Monday evening. But I did keep an eye to it. And I, I got to tell you, and I'm going to say this straight, I quite enjoyed what I saw. I really did. It's a bit of simple fun. I, I really did enjoy what I, what I watched last night, and I'll watch the another hour of it tonight. I'm not too sure that if you strapped me down and made me watch it from start to finish with nothing else to distract me, I wonder would I be here this morning? I'd probably be in in a, in a home for the bewildered if I had to do that over two nights. But it is what it is, and I enjoyed it. Your thoughts on on the Rosa Tralee? Very very welcome. We'll get to it. In, in our final hour today. 0818969696 on smartphones. Dermid says people should reflect that Bill Gates, Steve Jobs and other powerful wealthy people did not allow their kids to use phones. Thank you. Join the conversation. This is the Opinion Live. With Hidden Hearing, changing lives with the latest hearing health technology. They're all ears. Visit hiddenhearing.ie. Quartz 96 FM. The two grand minute. Listen to play at 7.40 and 8.40 every day. I'm in love with the money. Answer 10 questions in 60 seconds to claim 2,000 euros. 2,000 euros. Lorraine and Ross in the morning. I'm getting money. Corks 96 FM. Robbie says, PJ, I know of a child who never went outside his front door during the school holidays. He was on the phone all the time until early in the morning. Every single night. Love the show, says Robbie. Thanks, Robbie. Well, Robbie, <laughs> I'd be having a word with his parents and saying, what are you doing? He's sitting in his bedroom all day long. He's stung to his phone all night long. Take him out the door. Give him a ball. Shove him out. And... But yeah. 0818 96 96 96. We have talked so much in the last couple of years about the four-day week. And a lot of places have embraced it. And a lot of places love it. And it works really well for a lot of businesses. There's a new survey out now. There might be something easier for your boss than a four-day week. They call it a nine-day fortnight. There's a, a new survey has been done by Hayes Ireland, who are one of the top uh, recruiting firms in the country, and they say 51% of professionals, professional people, would consider a nine-day fortnight. And they say 75% of the people they uh, asked would change their job for a nine-day fortnight. In its simplest form... If your office is open Monday to Friday, in its simplest form, a nine-day fortnight means you've every second Friday off. 
which sounds great. In the newspaper industry for years, there was a nine-day fortnight, but that might involve weekend shifts. Probably a totally different thing. But Caroline Reedy joins me from the HR suite. If there's one thing we learned during COVID, Caroline, it was the value of our work-life balance. And, and, and I think all this movement to four-day weeks and now nine-day fortnight, it's accelerated through that discovery. Good morning to you. Good morning. You're so right. And I think even when you mentioned there, you'd be off every second Friday. Everybody was listening up saying, I'd love that. Yeah. Um, because I think for a lot of people now, they've got really used to hybrid working when your job allows it. And even for jobs that you can't do hybrid, it must be like in person, like a receptionist, etc. Organizations have looked at maybe three longer shifts so that you have three longer days, but you have more actual time off, which means you have less commuting, you have less time away and you have more quality time at home. And for an awful lot of people now, as you rightly said, work-life balance and flexibility is something that's a high priority. And particularly now as we're coming into the season of back to school, a lot of people would have probably more flexibility during the summer where their employer might have allowed them to work from summer homes or, you know, work more from home to facilitate work-life balance. For many, there is a shift now back into the office, at least to enforce the three and two. We've seen companies, ironically, like Zoom, Amazon, etc., that are saying, look, we want to see you back in the office and it's going to impact your review if you don't manage to do your three days. For a lot of people, that's you know, flexibility is something that's really important. And a lot of people are, uh, you know, very conscious now of if that isn't available in their current job that they're in, they'll definitely move somewhere else to get that work-life balance. I was fascinated by Zoom of all companies telling people it had to be into I mean, the irony wasn't lost in anyone, Caroline. No, definitely not. And like, obviously, from them, you know, they they really kind of, I suppose, made it, you know, enforced and said it's going to impact their end of year review. It's going to impact their bonuses, etc. If they don't, you know, make sure that they're back in the office at minimum three days a week. And I suppose for a lot of people, that's where it's landed now. It's landed to be a hybrid, mm. maybe. But some jobs equally are fully remote jobs, as we know. There's all these fabulous new hubs now after mushrooming around the country and they're, you know, at maximum capacity, particularly over the summer months where people have proven, actually, I can get the same work done, yet I can Mm. do it from anywhere and do it to very high standards. Well, when COVID came in here, there are obviously restrictions in the building and I had to uh, do the second half of my day at home. I became very happy doing that, and now I do it all the time. I'm, I'm gone out of here, and, and I do the second Which half of super. my day at home, and it's great for me. You know, I, I love the way yeah. that, and it's allowed me to do so much. I need to collect my, my son from, from his day service and stuff like that. It's made life really, it's a real great balance on the working day. And that, come back to where I started with you with COVID, people learnt the work-life balance and how important it is. You work very hard. But you also need time for you and a four day week or a nine day fortnight. Now, the nine day fortnight, Caroline, the idea, who who could and who couldn't do that? 
I would say a lot of office type jobs probably could PJ, you know, accountancies, solicitors, you know, um, could probably do a lot of those type of jobs, administrative type jobs, etc. And the idea is that you're condensing your hours into less um, days. The four day week is different. The four day week trial that's happening here in Ireland and in other um, countries as well. The idea of the four day week is that you actually work only four days, but you get paid for five. Mm. And the idea is that you're more productive over those four days. So that's one that's being tested as we speak. That's one that's harder to probably see how most employers would say, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to take that on. But the, the option of facilitating people to have different um, flexibilities and forms of flexibility, whether that's slightly later start so that they can, you know, do work-life balance commitments um, or finish that bit earlier, etc. We're definitely seeing a lot more employers very much open to that concept because they're seeing that they're getting it back in droves where they're getting the flexibility, they're getting the productivity and ultimately the person is a lot less stressed and under pressure trying to juggle everything and not being able to do so. There's another concept that comes in here too, isn't there, Caroline? That's task-based working. And, And some old school bosses don't like the idea that I'm paying you for eight and a half hours and I want every last second of that. The new way is, well, you've got all those tasks. Once you get them done, I really don't care whether you're doing them at four in the morning. Just get them done. Um, Yeah, the four in the morning might be a stretch now with our organisation of Working Time Act, but I get your point completely. But absolutely. And I suppose that's treating adults like adults as well because the concept of trusting somebody, you know, being at work, you know, rather than, you know, needing to be monitoring somebody to physically see that they're there. We've had huge issues over the years with presenteeism where people are there in physical presence, but they're not there in terms of productivity and maximizing their potential. So we've done a complete 360 Mm. to say, actually, it's all about your output. It's all about your contribution much more than about your physical where you are and we're, we're getting that potential back and I think in the world we work in now as well with people you know we've really raised awareness around neurodiversity maximizing people's potential you know for now we're training managers to say how do you maximize your team's potential because I always feel I always feel sorry for managers because a lot of managers were good at the day job, they get promoted as a result, but they've actually never received training to be good managers mm. and to, you know, spot potential in employees, maximize their opportunity in line with their learning style in terms of, you know, making them feel that they're, get, you know, they're able to contribute to their full potential in the mm. work environment. So I think training managers is something we've really embraced as well. And that's been, we've got the full reward to that in yeah. organizations that yeah. have done it. I'll come back to the, the four a.m. thing for a sec. I don't necessarily mean that Tommy or Mary has to work until 4 a.m., but Tommy <laughs> Tommy has a report that needs to be on his boss's desk at, at, at nine o'clock tomorrow morning, right? But it's a gorgeous day. Tommy's kids are home from school. He brings them to the beach. They go for a swim. They have some fun. And then Tommy gets up early, sits at the laptop and gets that report done and sent. 
That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, and I think one of the really big, important elements of working remotely and working from home, etc., has been very much around making sure that there's no ambiguity about what we're both signing up to. And organisations have done, you know, a lot of proactive policies to say, this is what I expect. So if you're working from home today. I expect you're at your desk working from home and you're available to jump on a Teams call or, mm. you know, to be available should your colleagues need you. Yeah. If it's a case that you need to take the kids to the beach or, you know, do something else, then you need to flag that and say, listen, is it okay oh, that yeah. I do that? So that there's no ambiguity then. So the employee doesn't feel, oh, I wonder, is this okay? Or am I actually, you know, outside of the parameters and vice versa? the company aren't looking for somebody and they're not there because they're fundamental elements that contribute to that trust piece where we're now all on the same page. And in principle, by the way, most employers will say we get so few fine days in Ireland, let's be honest, that, you know, if one of those magic days happen and somebody says, listen, is it okay if I do this today? Mm. People will play ball, you know, because obviously, you know, that's going to come back to you in, in droves. But I do think it's important that those policies are in place so that that ambiguity isn't in place because otherwise then you have a colleague who says, listen, do you see the way um, PJ was off yesterday? And, you know, like, I mean, that was a day's, surely a day's leave. And PJ is thinking, well, no, actually, I worked the hours back. And the boss is actually going, I actually have no idea what you're talking about because nobody consulted me. So I do think that transparency it works really well at having strong trust foundations, but that's back to your policy then as well. Yeah, yeah. You, you it, is it accepted, Caroline? Because sometimes it isn't. Some, I think some bosses uh, don't accept it. But in a, in a world of full employment as we have now, where there's more there's more jobs out there than than we have workers to fill them, you got to trust your people to deliver. And you gotta, you you you'll get back from people what you put into them, won't you? You do absolutely, and I think as well. Even though it is an employees' market, there's lots of you know jobs out there. People want to work with good companies too, and I really do find that companies who really value their employees they're managing to fill the jobs that they have available and they're managing to do that very proactively because people see, look, I'm going to be looked after there. My well-being is going to be important. You know, it's going to be a fair environment. Dignity and respect is high on their priorities. So is diversity and inclusion because people want to work for good companies that they feel that employer brand isn't something that's just lip service. It's something that they actually, that's how they live in that organization. And the old adage that people join companies and leave managers is still true today. So again, emphasizing the need to make sure that the managers are trained and have the skills and are equipped to manage that kind of, I suppose, transition that has occurred now to this flexible working. Could it be a thing that given the the situation we're in at the moment, that the quality of job might increase because managers will recognise if I'm going to get her for that job, I got to, first of all, I got to sign her on. I got to make it attractive for her. Then I got to keep her because there's someone else across the road wants her skills too. Will it improve the employment situation for people? 
Absolutely. And we're seeing as well because we're tight on labour and, you know, the increasing cost of labour that we're starting to see more and more automation coming in. So you see your self-service tills in your Mm. checkouts. You see reception areas now where you check in and you don't meet the receptionist. But in and then you see chat GDP and artificial intelligence and automation, etc., becoming part of what we are experiencing. However, the idea then is that the people are there to do better elements of the job where the customer can feel that experience or if they have a question that they want to ask, they can ask in relation to seeing the city or, you know, those kind of things where you're getting the interpersonal connection, but you're not doing it for the more uh, jobs, you know, the jobs that can be uh, automated. So we're definitely seeing that's really uh, accelerated now, particularly in jobs where there are skills shortages. And we also see work permit legislation being expanded, you know, where the critical skills are increasing again, because, for example, to get a baker or a butcher, you know, those kind of craft type jobs, impossible now. So we're definitely seeing more changes in the delivery of service and changes in the type of jobs. And like they they, they say now that a lot of the jobs, people who are getting their Leaving Cert results this week, a lot of those jobs haven't even been invented yet yes. by the time they finish college and they're going to be applying for their first, you know, role after graduating. You know, the types of jobs they're going to be doing are very different to the types of jobs we did when we were in that stage. Yeah. And I remember like one of my first jobs was a graduate recruitment in Kerry Group. And, you know, it was the manual reviewing of application forms and, you know, all that kind of manual element is completely automated now. So there's definitely huge advances in technology and, you know, automation to kind of, I suppose, speed up those type of um, high intense yeah. uh, task jobs. The whole, the whole thing is changing, Caroline, and, and in much of it for the better. The idea of every second Friday off and uh, even a four-day week is great. It's not going to happen in this job, unfortunately. Thank you, Caroline, of the HR suite, Caroline Reedy. It's not going to happen in this job. I mean, there's no one going to let me be off every Friday and have someone else falling in to do this. Be nice, though. Be nice. Every second one to be nice, too. Um, <laughs> but no, not going to happen. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. Your thoughts on the changing workplace? Very very welcome. Uh, would you be up for a four day week? Would you be up for a every second Friday off? Or if you're an employer who's listening to me, are all these changes a flipping nuisance? Because I know for some people they they think that just a bloody nuisance. I'm trying to run a business here, and I've work life this and. Four day that. Can you not just work and I'll pay you? Old school thinking. Is it still out there? 0818 96 96 96. Join the conversation. This is the Opinion Line. With Hidden Hearing. Focused solely on your hearing health for over 35 years. They're all ears. Visit hiddenhearing.ie. Cork's 96 FM. The minds are live. Join the conversation. Call 0818 96 96 96. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Cox 96FM. But to Melissa, who was talking to earlier on, she caught a scammer 
in the act. Now, she drove all the way from Donegal to Cork and back in a day uh, in order to do it, but she caught them. Now, there was no one charging nothing. She just managed to get onto daft.ie and they were very good and they took the ad down. But it was a, a corny ad, a fake ad for a beautiful, supposedly a beautiful apartment or house on College Road in Cork. And when she got down to College Road on her little um, trip, fact-finding mission of a six and a half hour drive, she discovered there was no premises on College Road that looked like this picture she had in front of her. So she did a Google image search, reverse image search, and she found that the property was actually in London. So the whole thing was was a racket. We'll podcast Melissa's interview a, a little later. It prompted Finn to message and say, come here with the Leaving Cert results coming out and hundreds and hundreds of students now looking for a place to live over the next few weeks. These scams will be everywhere will be absolutely everywhere so we need to be very mindful of them which is an excellent point Finn thank you 0818 96 96 on employees and employers and four day weeks and nine day fortnights and the changing workplace and hybrid working and all of that uh, most employers who are encouraging their employees back into the office are only doing so because they've real estate they have offices leased. The leases run for years and they cost hundreds of thousands a year, if not millions a year, in rent. They just want to use the, the real estate until the lease runs out, which it, it's valid. It's valid. Then again, if they don't use all of the real estate, yes, they're still paying the rent, but the energy bill is down. You know, because they're not heating it, they're not lighting it, but it's a point. It's a point. I just thought when when Zoom wanted its people back in the office, the irony of it all. Um, I still cling to this belief of mine that there's a huge amount of control freakery left out there among bosses. And I don't want you working at home. I don't want you maybe having toast or I don't want you, you know, sitting there in your pajamas at 11 o'clock. Uh, I want you in the office in your suit, in your shirt and tie, where I can watch you. Do you know? There's a matter of that out there still. 0818 96 96 96. Now back to school. They'll all be going back in the next week to 10 days. The secondary schools are starting to go back either late this or early next week. And everybody will be back by the 1st or 2nd of September. And it's a monumentally expensive time for parents. And I've mentioned many times how I'm so glad to be out of it because I can remember Augusts uh, gone by when you're sitting there with a couple of days to payday and all the school books are there and all the things and you're going, have we got beans for the dinner? Do you know? I'm, I'm Okay, I'm exaggerating a little bit but do you know what I'm getting at? It's a very tight time for families and Ed Harper, you've been thinking about this because you have a daughter-in-law who's teaching and she comes back to you on the costs that parents are facing and you make a very good point. The country or the government or the exchequer is currently awash with money. Good morning. Hi. How are you yeah. doing? Oh, grand, thanks. I mean, yes, I, you and me... Too. I mean, my kids are growing up, but I've got grandkids and my daughter-in-law is a teacher. And I mean, quite honestly, it's a nightmare. I mean, I, I know very 
clearly remember this. And, I mean, at the moment, your average back-to-school cost for a secondary school kid is 1,300 quid or just short of 1,300 quid. And a primary school kid's about 150 less. And I'm going to give the government credit while I can because it's a rare opportunity for me do, to do this because there's very little credit to be given to the government over almost anything. But they, they've got free books in primary schools yeah, now. I was going to get to but that. it's, that's been, you know, I mean, it's a disgrace it's taken this long. When you consider they've been celebrating, you know, the 1916 rising and God knows what else years ago. And it's only just got free books in our free education system. And, but the trouble is, it's the usual story. And I mean, you know, the schools are put in a position. I mean, they haven't got enough teachers for a start mm. because the pay isn't high enough to attract and keep people. That's the problem. You can get people into teaching, they, they get the, the, the training, the experience, and then they go and work in Britain or somewhere, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's the same with everything. And the, the frightening thing is, like, last year, um, so-called voluntary contributions in schools amounted to 30 million. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the parents, you know, are going to be under pressure. It's not just the books and whatever else to get back to school. Once the kids get back to school, it's only a matter of time before the, the requests come in for a voluntary contribution. Now, to be fair to the Minister, voluntary. she has said schools have no right to enforce that. If a parent doesn't, well, is not in a position to give it, then that's, that is what it is. Well, it's, that's, it's true. If you can't pay, you can't pay. But, I mean, look, if you're faced with this, this suggestion, which is true, because the schools don't have adequate budgets, that if you don't put this money up, everybody in the school, including your child isn't going to get as good an education because, do you know what I mean? And I've even heard stories, and they're very rare, but I've even heard stories of, of teachers, you know, literally making a mock of a child in the class because they their parents haven't yeah. produced the money. We've, we've heard that too, rare, Ed. We've heard that too, which is appalling. Yeah, and that's horrific. Mm. I mean, God knows it's hard enough, you know, kind of trying to, you know, keep your status in a, a whole group of other kids of your own age without that kind of thing. But as I say, the schools are desperate. That's the truth. They're confident. And, yeah. you know, good, a good teacher will substitute for a, a, a lack of resources. But when you've got a lack of teachers as well as a lack of resources, I mean, God knows. And it's not as though the country is poor, if there is such a thing as the country. I mean, the, the government has got more taxes coming than it ever expected to get. But, and the, but from the point of view of the ordinary people, we've got less. I mean, the, the average wage, you know, the average wage, most people don't even earn the average wage. But the average wage went up 4% last year. Mm. And I, you know, remember inflation at various times in this last year on food being over 15%. Mm. So where does that leave people? And then, you know, you've got to get things for the kids to go to school. You, you know, you, then kids don't live by books alone. You know, you've got to feed them yeah. and, they go and back clothe to them. Yes. And, yeah, and, yeah. And, and they go through the clothes. Oh, God, stop. Yeah, and I mean, the whole cost of living, uh, the, uh, the way it's gone. And yet, I think I, think I heard correct. I must admit, I, I was kind of so shocked. I sort of wondered if I heard it, but I think I heard on the news this morning, that the average income of the average CEO, and of course, what's the average CEO in the same way? You oh, know, I read this worker? one. I read this Three million. one. 138 times the salary of the average employee. 
Yes. And I mean, that apparently is around three million. Now, <laughs> who could spend three million in a year? And somebody said to me today, well, what do they spend it on? And the answer is they spend it largely, you know, to a certain extent, luxury, okay. But I mean, even your average CEO is pushed to, you know, drink more wine and, and have more restaurant meals. <laughs> so what they are mostly spending it on is buying things that make them more money i.e. stocks and shares and this, mm. that and the other. And so, you know, all the time society is polarizing. And the frightening thing is, you know, a few people believe that, you know, put the Green Party in government and we'll see some action on, on climate change and we'll see some moderation on the polarization of Irish society. But we really haven't. This is the frightening thing. And If you know, anything, I think, Ed, if anything... And I'm not necessarily lay, p- pointing the finger of blame at the Green Party here, but if far for me for me to do that. But I think we've ended up our society now, and it pains me to say it. I'll be doing this show ten years come next March. Our society is more polarized now than it has been at any other yeah. point in my life. Yeah, that that is the frightening thing. I mean. One of the things, I mean, I, I'm from England, as people probably realise, um, but I've been here 44 years now. And one of the things that attracted me to Ireland was that it, it was a, a relatively equal society compared to Britain when I came. And it certainly isn't now. Not at all. I mean, if, if anything, well, the Conservative Party in Britain are doing their best to you know, catch up and make sure that they can keep the keep head in the league of inequality. But... Uh, you know, really, Ireland is not the country it was at all. You know, really, really different. And somebody said to me, um, I, I was singing in Cork at the, the Singers Club in Cork in, in the small Queen Fornoch, and I, I was, wasn't expecting to be in Cork. And um, I, I thought, well, well, no problem. I'll just sing a song and say, has anybody got any floor space for me and the dog? And I'll, I'm moving on. I'm going back home tomorrow. And I did. It was this deathly hush. And somebody finally said, yeah, you know, you're okay, you know, and that was great. But the thing was, he said to me, you're taking a hell of a chance. He said, and I said, well, you know, in the in the 60s, I traveled all up and down the West Coast and I never had any problems. I mean, and he said, well, I suppose you're asking in the right place, you know, to, to, to find somebody. But he said, on the other hand, you know, it used to be that a stranger was a friend you didn't know now a stranger is potentially a threat. And that's what's happened to the society. And it, it, it is all because, it's not because everybody's turned greedy. And it's like people are always saying, oh, we lost the run of ourselves. No, actually, most of us never had <laughs> a run of a run ourselves. Of ourselves. To lose. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and as somebody said to me at the time, you know, it's all right talking about the Celtic Tiger, but, you know, the only thing we got from the Celtic Tiger down here in, in West Cork was the fleas. <laughs> it's bloody true, you know. Yeah, it's like, it's like someone someone rang me one morning and one of the most memorable quotes, Ed, talking about that the division in society and people struggling to make ends meet. He says, make ends meet, PJ. Make ends meet. If I could get them to wave at each other across a crowded space. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, the other the other thing that people have to remember is we all, we always get told, oh, um, wages are rising, and yeah, of course they are rising, and it's always in percentages. But you know, sort of ten percent of sweet FA 
is, mm. I mean, it's one of the reasons I went to school. It's something I learned there that ten percent and nothing is nothing. Is nothing. You know. But come back to where we started, because as always, Ed, I'm enjoying the conversation far too much. We'll still be here at three o'clock if 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 we keep talking. Yeah. The cost of going back. The cost of going back to school. It is coming down thanks to this uh, initiative with the books and the workbooks. Yes, but that's only primary school, of course. But but more needs to happen, you think? Yeah, and I mean, if you've got one child, you know, maybe you've some class of a chance. If you're earning wages, if you're employed. You know, but what the hell do you do if you're on social welfare? I mean, you know, you're, you're in trouble. And if you've got several kids and, you know, an awful lot of people will, I mean, I don't know what the average family is now, but I mean, two or three kids is, is by no means un- unusual. Mm. And if you're looking at that, you're talking about pushing 4,000 a year to send your children to secondary school. You're, you're talking about bothering the credit union every August. And that's, yeah. That, and that's, yeah, yeah. And that's how it, exactly. if, if, if and it thank God if, for credit unions. If it wasn't know? for them, if it wasn't for them, some people wouldn't be able to close their kids and send them to school. Ed, thank you. Always a pleasure. Ed, the goat farmer of Cape Clear. Wonderful character. Wonderful, wonderful character. Uh, been here 43 years. 0818 96 96 96. I love talking to Ed. Really do. Great, great sense he makes. Uh, on cell phones, PJ, my daughter has a smartphone. She's 14 years old. I usen't to buy data for it because we've Wi-Fi at home. But in one class, she couldn't do her work then because the teacher posted all the work up to Google Classroom. And because she didn't have data, she was unable to do her schoolwork in class that day. That's from Dylan. Yeah, surprised the school didn't have Wi-Fi, but your, your point's a valid one. Come here before I forget this, and I will. It all starts next Monday morning, quarter past eight. I am so jealous that I'm not allowed to enter this, and my daughter is so cross with me that she's not allowed to enter it because of the job I do. This I'm talking about the big one. Ireland v South Africa, Stade de France in Paris, September 23rd. We want to send you and a friend to support Ireland on the world stage. Listen to this for a prize. Return flights, three nights accommodation in Paris, gold category match tickets with hospitality. I've had the privilege in in earlier years of my career to find myself in the hospitality suite at Stade de France. You, you don't need to, to know why. It was just the way the day went. Oh boy. Oh, you want to see a match from that place. So we're going to send you there. Uh, find out how you could win the ultimate rugby experience. It's next Monday morning, quarter past eight. It all starts here on Cork's 96 FM. Join the conversation. This is the Opinion Live. With Hidden Hearing, changing lives with the latest hearing health technology. They're all ears. Visit hiddenhearing.ie. Cork's 96 FM. The Cork Diary. Cork's 96 FM. The Cork Diary is a free service. So if you're a community group, a not-for-profit organisation, or you have a fundraising event you would like mentioned, let us know and we'll tell Cork all about it. Email the details to corkdiary at 96fm.ie. You don't need me to tell you, even though I do every so often, but you don't need me to tell you because Eurostat, the European Statistics Agency, has told us in in very big letters that Ireland is the most expensive country in the EU for so many things in particular eating, drinking 
holidaying, uh, seeing things, just generally being a tourist. Very expensive compared to other parts of the EU. Not the most expensive, but very expensive. But there's a travel blogger and a very amusing travel blogger who travels the world visiting major cities. The idea being what you can do in a day for $100. So it's about, what, 90, about 90 euro. He goes into the city and he goes to full day as a tourist, as a visitor, for a hundred bucks can be done. His name is Upton Saidi, and you did it in Dublin recently, Upton. We'll forgive you for not coming to Cork. You did it in Dublin recently, and you ran out of money. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, I did. It was. I, I've done this in over thirty cities around the world, and Dublin was the first time. I just. I either didn't budget my my money well, or it was just too expensive, or maybe a little bit of both. So I ran out of money and and didn't get a chance to have dinner. How do you break your day down? You have $100 or 90 euro, whatever it is. How do you break your day down? Yeah, usually I do, uh, you know, I start with some maybe a coffee or a light breakfast. A lot of cities I do a walking tour. Um, there's a lot of f- things called free walking tour, and there's one in Dublin as well. Um, so I did a free walking tour, but of course you do, you are expected to tip your guide maybe around 10 euros or so, 10 or 15 euros. Um, so I, I mean, that took up about two hours. And then I did a uh, lunch, fish and chips, which was great. I did the uh, Guinness tour um, at the beer factory. And then I also did the um, the Celtic dance show. So, I mean, I had two big, big activities within my day. Each of those were about maybe 25 uh, euro each. So that took up a big chunk of my 90 euro. Um, and then the rest was on food and, and the tour. Mm. The quality of the food, you're not complaining about that at all. Yeah, I ended up being really, really good stuff. Like the fish and chips was absolutely incredible. Um, I had a breakfast sandwich, just really nice eggs with bacon, which was delicious, and uh, a nice coffee with a uh, free chocolate even. So, you know, a pretty pretty decent bang for the buck. You know, I've done this episode in Dubai, New York, California. So, you know, I when, when people ask me, other Americans ask me about Dublin, I, I definitely don't say like, oh, it's so overpriced by any means. Right. Is so, it expensive? Yes. But but, it, but I felt like I got a good value for well, the dollar. You've done it in 30 cities around the world. You mentioned New York. You mentioned Dubai. You've probably done, I assume you've done Paris, have you? Yep. Would, yep, you, would yep. you have done a place in Spain, maybe a place in Italy? Give me some of the capitals you've done. Yeah, I've done, yeah I've done Paris. I've done uh, London. I've done, um, I did Mallorca, Spain. I haven't done Italy. I, I've done Dubai. Mm. I've done New York. Um, yeah, San Francisco. Right. Uh, Hong Kong, Tokyo. Right. Yeah. And Dublin was the first place you ran out of money. First, first and only as of now, yeah. I mean, it just came down to like I could either see this show for, like I said, about 25 euro or, you know, save some money for dinner in a pub. And I was like, ah, I'll just do the show. Um, but yeah, I, I was able to stretch it in most other cities, even Hong Kong. I mean, you know, I think that's a, that's one thing I will say. It's like there's there's cities like Tokyo, Hong Kong, Bangkok. You can, you know, not, not Bangkok, but like Hong Kong is known to be a very expensive city. Um, 
But there's also like you can get really cheap food. Yeah. And I didn't find that in Dublin. You know, I didn't I found Dublin was more of a like, okay, either way you're gonna end up paying somehow, you know? Yeah. Um so 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 it, you know, it's it's I definitely wouldn't recommend it on a backpacker's budget yeah. um, to go to Dublin. The hotel, you know, that does obviously doesn't include anything when it comes to accommodation, but my hotel was insane. I think I paid like one fifty euro and it was a tiny, tiny room. Tiny room. Yeah. How it, did you find the you now having in. traveled to all those cities? Um how did you find accommodation in Dublin compared in price wise and quality wise to other places you've been I would say you know really bad <laughs> Dublin was really brutal and I actually made a whole other video about uh, the tech companies that have moved into to Dublin and you know in part dr- driven up the price of rent there and I interviewed a lot of locals including my tour guide about it and they just said there's just a, such a housing crisis and people are getting uh, pushed out and having to move to Portugal and things like that so yeah as a visitor in Dublin it was it was brutal and I wasn't expecting that that, that really took me by surprise London I'm ready to pay a lot Paris I'm ready to pay a lot, and uh, New York, I'm ready to pay a lot for my hotel, but but was not expecting to get such a, a tiny room for such an expensive price in Dublin. Well, just with the, with the pandemic, uh, a little bit of research I did myself, just for your own information as a visitor, there was a hotel, you may have come across it, right in the centre of Dublin on, on O'Connell Street, on the main street there, uh, the Gresham Hotel, stayed there during COVID with with my wife and my son and the total cost for two rooms for one night was under 200 euro including breakfast the minute COVID was over two rooms for one night not including breakfast was nearly 600 quid so Dublin's been at this for Dublin's been at this for a while wow (laughs) that's scary Yeah. yeah that's brutal are you still in Ireland no, I'm actually in Bangkok, Thailand at the moment. I'm really? filming a, an episode here. Yeah, yeah. Why? Wow. So talk to me about Bangkok. How does that compare? Do you get through your hundred books there? <laughs> no, actually. So, so in some cities or countries like Thailand, Vietnam, I have to slash the budget. So it's going to be fifty dollar day in uh, in Bangkok, Thailand, because it, you know I don't want to I don't want to be so uh, I don't want to like splurge so much. It's kind of absurd to spend that kind of money in Bangkok. But there's the point so you're making. There's do. the point, Upton. You can <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Bangkok, yeah, fifty bucks a day. Yeah. And you're oh, not splurging. Yeah, you live like a king. No, no, you live like a king here. Yeah, yeah, Bangkok. I mean, I mean, you know, my one-hour massage was nine dollars. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> and it was a, it was a pretty decent place. It wasn't like you know some hole in the wall. Um, your pad ties, your your food will be maybe between three to five dollars. You get a, a nice cocktail on the rooftop. Even that won't be more than five bucks. I mean, yeah. it's it's pretty incredible. So yeah, it's. I mean, Bangkok is the world most visited city and it's been for for years because you have so many uh china you know china and india so yeah. much, so many tourists coming from there you have a where, lot of where can we find your content my content is on youtube and facebook it's uh actually all platforms including tiktok and instagram but just very easy search upton u-p-t-i-n and if you uh, type those in type that in on youtube or facebook or instagram you'll find me u-p-t-i-n yeah how are you funding all this too by me asking 
Well, so yeah, so as a creator, um, it basically I get paid by YouTube and Facebook every month, depending on the views. So, um, like on my Facebook page, I can do around 30 million views per month. Um, and that wow. can equate to anywhere from 10 to, to 30 or $40,000 a month, um, just from ad revenues, right? So all those ads that you see on Facebook and YouTube, they, they, 50% of that revenue comes to people like me who make the videos. You're living so the dream, a- pal. You're living the dream. <laughs> Well, it with a name a like you, you're going to have to, you're going to have to come back to Cork. All right, I tell you why you're going to have to come back to Cork because your name, Upton. Now you spell it with an I, but Upton is a place in County Cork. No way. Yeah, I had way. no idea. Yeah, it's about what 15, 20 minutes from the city. So you're going to have to, you're going to have to come to Cork and visit I love the place that. named after you. Yes, <laughs> I have to. Uh, that would be a great video. Yeah, it's, visiting my roots, maybe. Absolutely. <laughs> Listen, it's great talking to you, and thank you so much for your time. And uh, good luck at Bangkok. Speaking to us from Thailand, Upton Saidi. Uh, you'll find his stuff on Upton UPTA, and just search it. It'll come up. Great videos, great sense of humor. But <laughs> of all the cities he's done, you live like a king. He says in Bangkok for fifty bucks. He's done Paris. He's done London. He's done Dubai, he's done New York. The only place he ran out of money on a hundred bucks a day was Dublin. Oh wait, one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. Kevin, delighted to hear uh, Ed back on the radio. He said, as always, love listening to Ed. Sharp as a tack. Sharp as a tack, Kev. And he's down there with his goats on Cape Clear. 0818969696. Join the conversation. This is the Opinion Line. With Hidden Hearing, focused solely on your hearing health for over 35 years. They're all ears. Visit hiddenhearing.ie. Cox96FM. If you go down to Baltimore, uh, down on the front, you know the front. But if you take a walk back up off the front and you follow a little road out of the village a bit, you will come across a most wonderful place called Rolf's Country House. Um, Gorgeous restaurant, lovely bar, beautiful place. Um, And they're growing (laughs) bananas. Now, Frederica Hafner, how on earth are you growing bananas in the garden of Rolf's Country House? Good morning. Good morning, Peter. Yes, we are growing bananas um, in our lovely inside garden, and um, it has some fruits on it. Wow. Now, these are these plants have been there for, for years, haven't they? They have been there for years. Um, Mum has to take, or we have to give all the credit to our mother, who is kind of the head gardener, and she planted it about 25, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it was always kind of lovely foliage, and I think that was primarily why she planted it, um, because of the foliage impact. And um, and now it's doing its second time around that it is actually producing bananas. Um, two years ago during COVID, it just did the flower and very insignificant bananas. But now it actually has two flowers. And on one of them, the bananas are already about 20 centimeters long and are filling up nicely. They're big so, bananas. They actually look like bananas, just kind of smaller version. And at the moment, they're green. Um, So now I said to Johannes, you know, get your thinking hat on and maybe come up with some recipes. Yes, are they edible? 
I don't know. Um, apparently, you could, you, you're you not going to die from them, but apparently they are, have a lot of seeds inside. Yeah, yeah. Because um, so. bananas that are grown to be exported and eaten by people like me who loves a banana, <laughs> they're a different kind of thing. These are kind of, they're kind of, and they're kind of a wild banana I, rather than a farm banana. It, it would be a, a kind of a wild banana. And, um, yeah, the the ones that we eat um, is slightly it's the cultivar, but then you get the wilder ones, and they you would have to cook them before you could actually eat them. They probably make a gorgeous ice cream on your dessert menu. Yeah, there. You never know exactly, <laughs> you know. Tell me about I I, I discovered Rolf's um, through a friend, and, okay. and and we were down there earlier in the year, and I'll be back again very very soon. You've got you've got something really special down there. Tell me the history of it, Frederica. Well, it was um, mum and dad that decided to kind of uproot from Germany but, um, in 1979. But before that, dad was actually living in Ireland during the 50s and he was um, training apprentice in watchmaking. So he was kind of employed by the Department of Education back in the 50s. And he fell in love back then. And then eventually he actually convinced mum to move over in 1979. And in the following year, 1980, they opened up Rolls. Uh, so it started very small. It was a derelict farm with loads of um, run-down, um, ruined-out buildings. And over the years, um, they just or we just renovated them and kind of and mom kind of got very straight away involved into the garden. There was only the mature trees around, and she kind of did done all the planting. And luckily, in the inside garden is quite um, very sheltered. Hence, it has a very subtropical feel to it. Yeah, it's been a strange summer. Hasn't it? And that may have contributed to the, to the crop. I think so. You're right. First, we had this extreme heat back in May and June, which is now followed with this high volume of water, which bananas love water and humidity. And the temperature is still quite favorable, still very humid and warm. So I think the banana is definitely driving and a lot of other tri- um, plants as well. Now, West Cork, you're there long enough to know, has a strange climate anywhere? Federica, when you think that there's a bamboo farm in, in Glengariff. <laughs> That's right, yeah. And people grew pineapples in their glass houses at one stage over the years. Like, it's, it's got a strange climate down there. I think we just have this incredible microclimate, you know, in, in little pockets, you know, and if it's favourable, we can grow a lot of things that wouldn't grow anywhere else. Yeah. Are you, you busy know? for the season? Is the, is, the, is the area busy? Is Baltimore busy? It's busy. I think it overall has been a good season and hopefully we have now a nice stretch into the September, October yeah. um, because I think our seasons usually like July and August are pretty much guaranteed and what makes our season would be the shoulder seasons, you know, yeah. like May and the Septembers and they look promising. I think it will be good. Yeah, the, the September, it's true, September can be kind and sometimes in the, in the way, and if, if I'm just going back over life experience, in the wake of summers that haven't been what they should have been, September can be very kind to us. I find usually September is nearly nicer than August on the weather front anyway. Yeah. Um, but often you're right, I mean, especially going by this past summer, it can get worse anyway, you know. It's true. <laughs> ain't that, ain't so, that the truth. You know. All right. Okay. Well, listen. As, I, I hopefully, hopefully, at, at some stage, I will see you guys over the next over the next few weeks. Mary Jo has them. They don't mature. Uh, you have them. You can eat the nut part. Okay. Oh yeah. Mary Jo says you can actually eat the nut part. The, the, the nu- seeds in the middle. 
Yeah, there's low, apparently loads of seeds, but I didn't come that across that you can eat them. I definitely shall try it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> you should come down and have a look at it yourself. I may you well know? do. I'll have, to get a, I'll have to get a picture with the banana tree. I will. Frederick, you look for, I look forward. I'll be back down in Baltimore in, in a few weeks. It's, it's a place I love, one of my favourite places in the world. And uh, be down to see the banana tree in Ross. Thank you very much, Frederick Hafner of Rolf's Country House in uh, lovely Baltimore in West Cork. They have bananas growing in the garden. 0818969696. And Mary Jo says, they've got uh, seeds in them. You c- Can you eat the seed? Mary Jo, is that what she's saying? You can eat the seeds out of them? Sounds nice. 0818969696. All right. I was watching it. Well, I was watching it in the way I watch it, right? I don't sit down and strap myself in and watch the whole thing for the two, two and a half hours. Some people might do that. I don't. What I do is add the telly on. I have my phone or my tablet open with my notes for the, the show tomorrow and I'm reading through those and whatever. And I might have a book that I'm reading. But the Rosa Trilly is on in the corner and I, I actually did, must say, enjoy it last night. First on stage, first on stage was the rebel herself. The Cork Rose, Kate Shocknessy. Oh my goodness. Look at you. Thank you. You look absolutely Thank stunning. So and I know first out, take it all in. How does it feel? It's very, it was very nerve-wracking to be first out, but I'm absolutely honoured. No, but look at to you. open the show with you, Catherine. Look at you, representing the Rebel County. You look mighty. And I know that you are from Cork. You're from Ballancolic. My parents are both from Tralee originally. They actually met here 40 years ago this Aww. year. <laughs> Sweet. Even John, yeah, my mom and dad. But there's lots of other special people yes. uh, watching you tonight as well, isn't yes. there? Yes, in Norwood Grange, nursing home where I work. Uh, they're lucky to have you. They are very lucky to have you. <laughs> I'm lucky to have them. We always attended the festival and I used to make like a little rose book and I used to get all the signatures um, of all the roses. Oh. Not the greatest driver in the world. You were mm. lucky you were on a bus the last two weeks. <laughs> no, I uh, did my driving test five times. Um, I had 36 driving lessons and I had two different driving instructors. I think the first fella kind of gave up on me after a while. Um, I'm, not the, I'm not the most gifted at the driving, no. But I did win the fastest of all the roses in the go-karting. Mind you, mind you, I don't know if the guards down here would say that's a good thing when it comes to road driving. Well, the guards uh, asked me afterwards, like, how were you so fast? And I said, just don't break. You're fine. <laughs> Kate Shotnessy, or Cork Rose, who knows, uh, will it be her name on, on the trophy and the tiara late tonight? Or I think overnight, Liam De Bruyne of the, the, the Irish Daily Mail joins me. Uh, Liam, I, I, think, I think overnight they were looking at the girl from Mayo who played the harp as, as being a favourite. Did you have one last night? Good morning. Morning, thanks a million for having me on. Um, yeah, that you're pretty much dead right there. It seems to be the fans' favourite from last night is the Mayo Rose. And I think a big part of that is that she was very bubbly. She was very friendly and easy to talk to. But she brought in a traditional element, which always goes down well with both viewers and judges by playing the harp. And it, it is nice to kind of have that traditional Irish feel to the show because when you do watch it now um, sometimes that can get a bit lost but thankfully I thought last night was a good representation of maybe the show that my mom or my gr- granny would have watched 
and such as like having the poems and the the dancing. There was a lot to like, but personally, I think my favorite from last night was the the limerick rose. Um, she was the rose who had the to- the clip from the toy show. And she spoke about um, having Asperger's, and yes, yes. I, I, and she sung a beautiful rendition of um, "Part of Your World" from The Little Mermaid. Yeah. I thought, and she was only nineteen, which was crazy. Yeah, yeah. You've written a, a great piece about memorable moments over the years, moments that we always remember. So far, I'm not sure there's been one of those this year. But overall, how the, the changes to the show? How do you think it works? Well, first, the memorable moments, I think a big part of that list is what we remember is kind of the stuff that makes us go, what on earth is happening right <laughs> now? Like, such as the the one that comes to everyone's mind is um, the Rose. I think it was in the early 2010s on she did the dance to Party Rock Anthem, and you can just see Dahi in the background, <laughs> just like everyone wondering what's going what on. What's going but, on here, yeah. It, but, but I think last night um, it did have a bit of that with um, the I believe it was uh, no was the the rose who had the interactive book reading. Oh um, yeah. I, I think that was the Arizona rose, and she had everyone like shouting choo choo choo. And it was one of those things where you're like, I'm not sure what I'm watching, but I know I'm entertained. Yeah. And, that's a huge part of the show, but the changes that you mentioned this year being the first where we have two presenters in the form of Dahi O'Shea, who's well used to at this stage years of experience, and then um, Catherine Thomas coming in, who I think did a very good job. I didn't feel like having two presenters uh, took away from the show at all. I think each of them had their moment to shine and uh, the big thing about being a Rosa Trulli presenter is that you, you're you not one to take the spotlight. That's you're right. the one to shine it on them. And Catherine has shown before through her work on Operation Transformation and a host of other shows over the years yeah. that she's a very easy person to talk to. And there was a great moment last night where um, she she made a, a bit of a risque joke, which I don't know. Can I repeat on go there on, go at on. eleven? But it was to do with the the she made a joke about the flute, and she brought up uh, a risque shop in Tralee, <laughs> and I I know that some of the some of the target audience of the show who might be a bit older might have been coughing up their teeth while walking. <laughs> It was a bit edgy and it was funny. And they're pals, Dahi and Catherine. And that comes across. They're comfortable working together. God, yeah. Like, I think that's what was the big thing because they could have easily, like, when they're bringing in a second host, they could have brought someone in who maybe screen tested well at stuff, such as, like, they could have done, like, practice interviews. But by bringing in someone who has that friend, there's that kind of, like, gelling processes immediately out the window because they're already mates and yeah. I think the probably the biggest bit from last night that showed their friendship was um, the firefighter suit when they were trying to put it on um, <laughs> in 30 seconds with the San Francisco Rose 
I, I thought that like having them both on stage was maybe we didn't get enough of last night, but I suppose when you have two of them up on stage with the rose, it kind of becomes about them and not so much about the rose. Yeah, yeah, and they're very careful at not taking from uh, the rose in the moment. Liam, thank you. The line isn't the best, but that's it. Liam Brun, Liam De Bruyne of the Irish Daily Mail and Extra TV, following the rose truly. It's fun. It's enjoyable. The knockers can take a hike. I, I did enjoy it. Anthony, you enjoyed it, did you, mate? Oh, I did. It was a lovely moment. I, I'm probably crying here at the moment. I'm talking to the cockroach because my aunt from Belly Land, Dorothy, she went home to God there in February and I met the cockroach and I gave her a bottle of holy water and I just felt a special connection outside the hotel in Limerick. She's a beautiful person. Give them all holy water to Carks, Clare, to Kerry Rose, the Limerick Rose. And I actually came from work that evening from work and, and I said, I'm going into it. I'm going into it myself. I'm one of these people that will just go to things. If I go on my own, I make everything. And someone said to me the other day, for pleasure, you have great confidence to go and do it. But so look, we're only here for a short time. Enjoy it. And uh, enjoy the road, actually. Good man. Anthony, thank you very much. Positive words. And I hope the Cork grows. Come on, Cork. Come on, the rebels. <laughs> Cheers, Anthony. Thanks, mate. Uh, by the way, there's another Cork woman. Is it the Dublin Rose? Ha- grew up here and went to school here. And did I, did I get this right, the Dublin Rose? Her dad is English. Her mum is from Cork. They met in London. Then they went to the Falklands because her mother got a job at the Falklands. And then they're back in Cork and she lived in Cork. She was 17. That's the Dublin Rose. Oh, yeah. Tomorrow, Lorraine and Ross back with you in the morning. Win big. Uh, tell them your favourite vacation spots in Cork. There's two grand up for grabs in the two grand minute. And tell me lies with books. What they're at there, I have no idea. Lee says we have avocado trees in Inshagila with full-size fruit last year. They seem to be smaller this year. Maybe they won't develop into full fruit. I'm not sure if it's due to weather. <laughs> avocado trees in Inshagila. Thanks, Lee. And Mary, Mary Jo sent us a picture of her banana plant. There they are. There they are. Bananas and avocados growing all over West Cork. And 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 that, it's bizarre. It's a funny old world, but you know what? It gives us a living. Program edited by Emer O'Hay, produced and researched by Fergal Barry. We'll put the podcasts of all the various bits and pieces up over the next couple of hours, including the full show, which will be available in mid-afternoon. And we shall talk to you tomorrow, just after nine. Join the conversation. This is the Opinion Line. With Hidden Hearing, changing lives with the latest hearing health technology. They're all ears. Visit hiddenhearing.ie. Cox 96 FM. You won't believe this. In the last hour, we had Gary. Yeah. Who was the 2007 Castletown Bear B-Box champion. Champion, yeah. Right? On the line. No way. Is Aoife, who is the 2008 Castletown Bear B-Box champion. Aoife! <laughs> That's actually the winning B-Box there. That was the winning B-Box. What? what do you call that piece? Calling the cat. <laughs> <laughs> Ross in the morning. Test drive the award-winning Skoda Enyaq electric SUV at no DC Cars. Skoda sales dealer of the year. Cars 96.